Who are the millennials? Why have some of them walked away from the faith? And why have some of them stayed? How do older Christian friends help maintain younger people's faith? Why should the church talk about both faith and doubt? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast of Cranmer Hall Durham, where we explore some of life's big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Fleming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Dr. Ruth Perrin. Ruth is a research fellow at St. John's College, on the associate staff at King's Church in Durham, and an associate tutor within the Free Church track here at Cranmer Hall. And our question today is, what does millennial faith look like? Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Ruth Perrin, welcome to Talking Theology. Hi. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself, your research fellow here at St John's College. Tell us a little bit about your different roles and, and what sort of work you've been doing over the years. Um, I have a background. Once upon a time, I was a school teacher, uh, and then I went into missions and have done 20 years of ministry with students and young adults, uh, which led me into research. And I've spent the last kind of decade researching students and young adults um so that's kind of my professional background somewhere along the way I blagged a PhD um but yeah so I'm a, now I'm a mixture of kind of researcher minister many hats many hats many hats juggled well mm, juggled <laughs> Ruth today we're talking about the faith of millennials mm-hmm through the prism of those millennials who've lost their faith. Let's go back, though. Who are the millennials and what characterises them? And I guess what what got you interested Mm. in researching that in the first place? Yeah, millennials is a little bit of a a tricky phrase because people tend to use it ubiquitously these days Mm. to describe young people. um, And that's inaccurate. Um, The students coming through now are not millennials. As far as I'm concerned, anybody under 25 doesn't count as a millennial. Um, they're calling them Gen Z. So I, I don't know about Gen Z, but millennials, um, are mm, people argue around the boundaries, but basically people born between the early 80s and mid 90s. So the eldest are kind of pushing 40 and the youngest are kind of 25, 26. Uh, and they're called millennials because they were born in the run up to the millennium is the idea. Um, Another, they've got all sorts of names. People love to talk about millennials. Gen Y is another that's most common because they follow on from Gen Z, who follow on from the baby boomers. Um, but yeah, so millennials is what what Americans really have come to call Gen Y. Mm. So it's kind of become common in the literature. Mm. So. And apart from being born in the run-up to the millennium, what, what is it that characterises them? What are the kind of things that are associated with them? Well, people, um, I spend a lot of my time defending millennials. People love to take a pop. Older generations have always loved to criticise younger generations. They've been doing that as far back as, you know, Aristotle. Um, So Generation Snowflake is one of the names that they have disparagingly been called. I think that millennials, obviously, blanket generalisation. So at one level, nonsense. But at another level, there are some common traits. Um, millennials are 
authenticity is what they claim to value. So you've got to be true to yourself. Uh, therefore, they will not pretend to be religious if they're not. There's no ticking the Church of England mm. box on a questionnaire anymore, as their grandparents might have done. Um, there's a real concern around justice, social justice, care for the poor. Um, how else would I define millennials? Many of them really want to make a difference with their lives. lives. So there's a sociologist in America, Christian Smith, who refers to them as altruistic individualists. So it is all about me and my life, hence the Generation Snowflake thing. But there's a real desire for um, changing the world, making the world a better place. Um, So where other generations have been concerned with uh, kind of personal career or finances or status, most millennials are not bothered about those things. They're not that bothered about the title. They want a sense of, I'm making a difference. I'm doing something useful with my life um, rather than pay me loads of money for it. There is a real thing, though, around. um, It's the authenticity thing again around. If I'm not enjoying this, why should I do it? Mm. Uh, Which is is kind of partly what makes them look a little bit flaky to all the generations who are just suck it up and do it. They're like, well, no. Why should I suck it up and do it? I'm going to go and do something else. So partly because there is no job security for most young adults. If a job is, they're not enjoying it. If it's not fulfilling, if the relationships are not happy, then they will go and look for another job. They're not going to stay loyal to a business, an institution, an organization just for the sake of it. So transferable skills, none of them are going to get a job for life and they know it. So, you know, nobody graduates into a career that they follow for the next 50 years. Not even teachers, not even doctors. You know, that just doesn't happen. So millennials are sincere, but they're not dutiful. So that's the overall picture of of looking at um, uh, millennials as a whole. Your your particular research, I know, was looking at um, millennials who had a strong activist faith yeah. at university yeah. but then that kind of changed some of them over the years mm-hmm. and 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 you looked at how that happened and what would that happen just yeah. give us a picture of how that pattern of change occurred okay so i ended up with um i i essentially interviewed nearly 50 people in their kind of early 30s now the first half of their 30s um and obviously everybody's faith journey is unique so uh, at one level, patterns are helpful, but yeah. they're not predictive. Um, so I had a chunk who uh, had continued as active Christians and now in their 30s were still committed to their faith. Uh, some of them were committed to church, not all of them. Their faith had taken a different shape as they'd grown up, but they were still there. There were some who walked away. Um, so there were... a yeah, a, a reasonable number in the sample who no longer have a faith. And then there was a big chunk who still have a faith, but will not touch church with a barge pole. So they um, still love Jesus, but won't go to church. 
are not are not playing organized religion or at least if they are not in the forms that would be recognized as something you might call church mm. let's talk about those two groups the the group of the people who kind of lost their faith mm-hmm. and the people who'd kind of believe in jesus but kind of lost connection with mm-hmm. church whatever yeah. reason what were the what were the patterns of reasons that you found out for those sorts of transitions? Okay, so the the guys and girls who were apostate, so those who no longer have a religious belief, um, those, in all honesty, Philip, were quite harrowing stories to yeah. listen to. Uh, there were, I think, six in my sample, and five of them wept at some point right. as they told me their yeah. story. Yeah. So even several years on it was still raw it was still painful it hurt them um they all had three things in common uh one was that they'd had in their at some point in their 20s and it wasn't always in their early 20s people tend to think that student age that undergraduate age is is where it all changes Mm. um that's not true for today's young adults um emerging adulthood which we haven't discussed yet suggests that the developmental stage of exploring things has stretched so a lot of young today's young adults don't consider themselves or function as established adults until about the age of 30 they spend most of their 20s trying to work out who they are and what they're going to do and different jobs and all that sort of stuff so the idea that it's students where people convert or lose their faith I think is no longer the case. No, it's I a think bigger window. It's than, a bigger window yeah. into people's 20s. Um, so the, this this apostate group... Um, so there are three some, things, yeah. Yeah, at some point in their 20s, um, they had had some sort of existential crisis. Okay. So the gospel they'd grown up with or embraced in their teens just stopped making sense to them. Um, for several of them, they had never really bumped into non-christians or alternative world worldviews in a meaningful way and so when it happened that was quite shocking they haven't ever really wrestled um and, until they graduated or until their late 20s when something went wrong uh, and then their faith started to unravel um and it just struck me that that most of them hadn't wrestled with questions of faith as teenagers or even as students they'd been the good boys and girls that had done what their church leaders expected and i I wouldn't say they hadn't owned their faith they had owned their faith but they certainly hadn't rigorously examined it in any meaningful way um and then faced with work colleagues who were very confident of their atheism or whatever it kind of started to unravel. So that was one factor. Second thing was that all of them had some sort of personal crisis. Now that's not unusual. In your 20s, everybody's having personal crises all the time. Um, But in these people's cases, those were quite pronounced. So uh, mental health problems, marriage meltdowns. um, A number of them were divorced, you know, divorced by 30. So basically things had gone wrong Praying hadn't helped, faith hadn't helped, church hadn't helped. Uh, and so that kind of smushed together with the existential crisis. Uh, and all of them had a third factor in common, which was they had distanced themselves from a faith community. Okay. So they'd kind of withdrawn from support that might have been there. Uh, and one of the things that a number of them talked about was that they hadn't felt able to talk about their doubts okay. in church. 
So that's the what you call the apostate group. Yeah. What about the group who who you think you describe them as having a faith in Jesus, but mm-hmm. actually having no real con- connection with the church? What were the factors in that sort of change? Those were, um, again, really complex. All of them in my sample, and there were about 10 of them, um, I would say had leadership abilities, gifts, call it what you want. As I sat and talked to them, I thought, you're a leader. Um, And all of them in some ways in their early 20s had been involved in leadership of some sort in their church. Um, I guess lay leadership if you're an Anglican, if you're not, then some form of, you know, junior leadership role. Um, And they had been very committed, very enthusiastic, you know, the, the people that ran the youth work or the alpha course or all that sort of stuff Uh, and for many of them at some point in the journey that had gone badly wrong the leadership piece the leadership piece had gone wrong their own experience of leadership or how leadership had been received by others or the wider leadership um mostly their interactions with the leadership of their church so the way they had been managed yeah. as younger leaders uh, or the way older members of the congregation had right. been resistant to their ideas. So lots of them talked about, you know, they knew their friends were never going to come to church. So they wanted to create something that was accessible for their non-Christian friends. And the church congregation wouldn't shift, wouldn't be flexible, wouldn't allow them to try something new. Um some of them told me fairly horrendous stories of mismanagement by right. senior church leaders and clergy getting caught in church splits, yeah. uh, changes in leadership, changes in vision that meant they were now surplus to requirements. Mm-hmm. Um, just things that as a, as a, you know, a church leader myself make me go, oh, please don't let me ever have done any of that. Yeah. I probably have. I don't think most of it was malicious, but there was a lot of mm. bad management and bad communication with younger leaders. And that was the single most. It was a, it was certainly a key factor. Yeah. A number of them, if I'm honest, talked about being quite badly exploited. Right. Kind of financially. Mm-hmm. So they were giving massive amounts of time and energy and, uh, some of them were on the church payroll but were not being paid sufficient to live on yeah um and it and it wasn't like you know one thing happened and they took their bat home this was over months even years and eventually they just went i can't do this anymore Hmm. um so that was one factor that i mean you know there there were other factors but that was one of the ones that stuck out most strongly um a lot of them talked about being hurt Mm. Uh, I, I presented these findings at a seminar and a, uh, an older lady put her hand up and said, it strikes me from what you say that there's the, these young people, they just need to learn to forgive. They need to forgive their church leaders. They need to forgive the older people in the congregation. And I was like, well, yeah, they probably do. I see that. But I'm wondering how well forgiveness is actually modelled in the church as a whole before we expect 26-year-olds to forgive when 56-year-olds yep. don't. Yep. Um, you know, so the, if the forgiveness is one way, yeah, or even <laughs> I, it kind of felt to me like in some cases, if the church leaders had asked for forgiveness or had even said, I'm sorry, we got that wrong, that would have made a huge amount of difference. You've given us a snapshot of that 
apostate group, the, the second group that which were people often in the, leadership. Yeah, the, I mean, there are other factors <laughs> sure. in that. That's just one. Yeah, of them. one. Part. Um, and that the third group is those who whose faith was sustained in mm-hmm. whatever way it had developed. Mm-hmm. What were the factors that were part of that faith and church um, participation being an ongoing journey? Um, the the core thing in that, above all else, came down to relationship. Mm. Um, I was expecting it to be all about peer group. Right. Um, and peer group is part of it, having friends who are on the same faith journey as you are to support you in that. And I think especially, you know, when 97% of your peers think you're mad for believing in a God, you you do need some peers. So, um, you know, that makes a difference. Who people marry does make a difference. Um, but the, the thing that stood out to me from the research most was the support and friendship of older believers. The people who'd really thrived again and again, they mentioned just kind of informally the older lady who had mentioned them or had mentored them or the home group that they'd belonged to that had helped them through the years of having small children and being sleep deprived or the father figure who'd helped them sort out a mortgage because their dad was 300 miles away or that just very practical loving support people that had helped them through five years of depression and just loved them and loved them and loved them and loved them came up again and again the relationality of young adults and how much they want older christian friends Uh, and quite often i share that when i speak on this and i can see like baby boomers I, i spoke at a church that i won't name but the congregation were were all you know silver haired wonderful lovely people and when i said millennials want to be your friends i watched across their eyes flash you lie that is nonsense and so i dared them to go and ask a 25 year old to come for dinner and see what happened Uh, and when i shared this at new wine the millennials started clapping and you could see the baby boomers in the room looking around going what what they want to be our friends but it's absolutely the truth um that not in a kind of yoda luke skywalker teach me oh you know jedi master kind of way but in a i just want to share life i want us to work this out together um and and i think for baby boomers and gen x's that's a bit of a shock because when we were young our old people knew nothing you know we we were having nothing to do with them we were going to set up our own congregations Mm. because we didn't want to hang out with them Uh, but actually that's not how millennials operate for whatever reason, and then, you know, people speculate, the desire for a relationship with mm. older people is quite pronounced. Mm. Uh, and whenever I share this, people, you know, millennials come up to me and go, yeah, that's right. Um, so it's getting traction. So you, there's that sort of picture of across your sample size um, that, you, that you looked at, the kind of three broad categories. Mm-hmm. We've already begun to kind of tease this out a bit, Ruth, but what is there to learn from the stuff where the church has got things wrong and the stuff where the church has got things right. Give us, mm. give us some of the, the, the kind of key key learnings that you think the church needs to hear. Um, I think there is a real need for kind of cross-generational listening um, for boomers, Gen Xers, 
millennials, Gen Z now to kind of sit down and have honest conversations because I think every generation is carrying a different uh, a different value is not the right word a different part of the heart of God maybe um, and, and it's not that doctrine doesn't matter and it's not that you know logical thinking doesn't matter but I think the the desire for social justice the desire to see people reached with the love of Jesus actually is still there in in all of those generations and if people would sit and genuinely listen and collaborate and work out how to do this together that there's a lot of mutuality going on there I don't think millennials want to be hived off they they want to be part and sometimes honestly they're young and can be a little bit oh i know all the answers um but what young generation isn't like that uh, so i i think there's something here about collaboration and genuine relationship and genuine listening and genuine partnership i think is the the biggie um i think sincerity that that authenticity mm, yeah. um, and people being real, not just with that everything is awesome, isn't it brilliant to follow Jesus, but the struggles of of life and for people in their 50s and 60s to be saying to people in their 20s and 30s, yeah, that, that was hard. I remember that being hard. Let me walk you walk with you through that. You can make it out the other side. Um yeah, rather than, yeah, I think rather than just pretending, millennials and young adults, they see straight through that and they want to know how to really follow Jesus. Tell me how to do this. Tell me how to follow Jesus as a nurse when I'm not allowed to mention my faith. How do I do that? Tell me how to be a Christian father. Just the real nuts and bolts of how do I live this out? And does kind of acknowledging and dealing with doubt form part of that honesty and sincerity absolutely absolutely mm. and i think um i now have taken when, whenever i speak to our guys about talking about doubt and faith being like pedals on a bicycle mm. that you have to push on when you you know you push on one and another one comes up yeah. you push on that and another yeah. one comes up but that's actually how you move forward i think we've got some issues i'm from a kind of a a charismatic evangelical background and i think we've got some issues with acknowledging that doubt is part of the journey right. and um mm. but th- there's a helpful level of that isn't there i think to say to young adults "Ooh, everything is nebulous everything is flexible i'm not sure about anything well that's not very helpful developmentally that's not where people are at but equally you know the the kind of very black and white dogmatic we know everything about we know everything about everything <laughs> yeah. that doesn't wash either right. So I think it's about being wise and gracious in acknowledging that doubt is okay and God isn't mad with you for having Mm. doubts. How could we possibly understand him fully? So let's stand on what we do know Mm. and, you know, and Mm. and embrace, I guess, the mystery. There's, There's a bunch of research coming out of the States about young adults seeking the mystery of faith. Uh, and increasing numbers turning to kind of very ancient Christian traditions. So Greek Orthodoxy, for example. Um, and I personally think that that's not a million miles away from the popularity of kind of charismatic Pentecostal yeah. spirituality, that it's a seeking after 
the mystery and the presence of God. So the tangibleness of the Holy Spirit. But but I think allowing for doubt and mystery, you know, evangelicals are not typically very good at that. Uh, and I, I think there is a real hunger amongst young adults for there must be more than this, I think is how the song goes. Let's kind of keep exploring that a bit and, and, and ask, as you've been doing this research, what are the theological kind of themes that have either been raised for you yourself or that you found yourself grappling with as you've kind of really listened to these stories about faith being preserved or 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 um abandoned by millennials what other you mentioned oh. forgiveness earlier on but you know what what, what are the what are the what, what and you talked about the mystery of god mm. as a real encounter what are the other theological buttons that you know really i think are, are being pressed here i think there is and this is increasingly true we see this with our students now um so biblical literacy complete tanking just people know know very very little um, and that's the big story of scripture that, as well as in the oh book. yeah absolutely so yeah. i have a bible overview seminar that i do and i literally watch people's heads explode because they never join the dots up and that's not just young people no, no. Uh, in fact sometimes young people know more than people that have been in church 50 years but that's another subject um but it's not just that. I think one of the things about today's younger generations is that they are incredibly suspicious of authority. For good reason, often. They don't trust the banks. <laughs> they don't trust politicians. They don't trust education institutions because we're just consumers now, aren't we? You just want our money. They don't trust churches. I'm sorry, too many scandals. Uh, and they don't trust ancient sources of authority so they don't why should i trust the bible so it's not just a case that people don't know the bible it's a case of why should i trust this why why should i believe what the bible says why does it matter what the apostle paul says who cares um and so i think there's actually a hermeneutical underpinning there's a there's a understanding of what scripture is and isn't that is really important um, so it's more than just people knowing what's in the Bible. It's them understanding the Bible as a source of authority in the first place. Um, because the narrative is, I must be true to myself. So if I experience the Bible as being truthful and helpful, then it's truthful and helpful. But if I don't, it's not. I can put it on the pile of other things I reject because it's not truthful to me. So I think there is a... Um, there's a there's a piece around the credibility of scripture that that goes deeper yeah. even than the content of scripture okay. um so i think that that is part of the journey um is that something that's connected you talked about the authority mm -hmm. question and i can see how that impacts in terms of our theological approach to scripture and the mm -hmm. nature of scriptural authority but you've also kind of mentioned about the way in which leadership has been poorly exercised. Mm -hmm. what, what, what are the things that the church needs to learn there about how it needs to model godly leadership better? Well, it's easy to sit and say, 
here are all the things we're doing wrong, isn't it? Um, I think as leaders, we need to be on genuine faith journeys ourselves and modelling that sincerity. Mm. Not that I've made it, I've arrived, I've got all the answers, Mm. but I'm being a disciple of Mm. Jesus. I'm on the way as well. So it's walk with me rather than come and join me over here in in my position of... Um, well, yes and no. Um, I think, I think walk with me, but recognise I've been walking this walk a little bit longer than you. It's it's not a bad thing. But I haven't arrived. But I haven't arrived. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think genuine relationship, kindness, hospitality, sincerity. At one level, it's really not rocket science. You know, Jesus said, this is how they will know you're my disciples, because you love one another. If we could do it, and let's be honest, no generation of Christians has managed that, but if we could, that would cut it with young adults. Um, you, they, they, I've got a brilliant set of quotes from people. What do you want me to tell church leaders? Tell them everything doesn't have to be cool and hip. We don't need smoke machines and everything to be all singing or dancing but we need it to be real we need it to be sincere we need them to be living living out what they say they believe so lots of it comes back to sincerity i really think that the word sorry would make a massive difference on so many occasions and i think the models of leadership that we so often have in the church don't allow for that Ruth, and this may be a, a a question that's too sharp for you, but you, you've spoken, you've been spoken of yourself as a practitioner of mm-hmm. this. How has doing this research and processing all these insights affected you, your ministry, and your research, and your ongoing walk with the Lord? Um, Just it give broke, us some highlights. Well, it broke my heart. Is the yeah. honest truth. Can I hear that? There are a number of times I came home from interviews and literally sat in a room and cried mm. because. We had hurt these remarkable young men and women so profoundly. And it made me ashamed, Mm. if I'm honest, some of the stories. Uh, And some of them were from my own church. Mm. Uh, And that I found really distressing. There There were two individuals who I interviewed who told me that they hadn't felt able to tell anybody what was going on with their doubts. And I was one of the people that they could have come and talked to. And they chose not to. And it was their choice. It was their choice that, you know, they're they're adults, they're responsible. But the fact that they didn't feel they could come and talk to me, they didn't feel safe to do that. Um, but that was pretty devastating, I will be honest. Because, yeah, um, you know, I perceived myself to be friendly and approachable and honest and all of those things. Um, but they didn't feel able to do that. Um I think the cross-generational collaboration thing um, is something that I've picked up now and will always take the opportunity to include young adults in what I'm doing if I have the opportunity. So for speaking stuff or whatever, I'll, you know, tag team it with somebody younger if I possibly can. Um, if If I'm really honest, Philip, and I'm me, so I will be, I had a massive faith crisis myself um, 
if I'm honest, one of the most serious of my entire faith journey, listening to people's stories of how they lost their faith and thinking, oh my goodness, maybe they're right. Um, I mean, God's been very gracious, but I think that experience made me not just um, recognise how frightening it is, but really be able to empathise with the fear of your worldview collapsing. You know, because faith loss is not just people taking their bat home in a strop. It's a really profound, serious, distressing, frightening process. And it doesn't happen quickly. Uh, It happens over months, years, not days and weeks. So it's people a long time to go from, I believe there's a God and I'm following and giving my life to serve his kingdom to, I think that's all palpable nonsense. Um, so, so for me, part of the journey as a minister has kind of been inhabiting people's pain and going, oh my goodness. I, I guess I have a level of compassion for those who are really struggling that I perhaps didn't have before. Ruth, you've um, spoken of the value of honesty for the millennials, but you've also demonstrated that in what you've shared both of your research but also of your own walk of faith we're uh, very grateful thank you for coming on talking theology you're welcome you have been listening to talking theology a podcast from cranmahal durham cranmahal is a theological college within st john's college in the university of durham training people for ministry in the church of england and other denominations Find out more about us at cranmahal.com. <laughs>